Well, let's say it again, since today is the only day we get to say it. Alleluia! Christ is risen! The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia! Today is the feast of all feasts, and there is food for everyone. I really hope you came hungry today. Um, Some of you I know very well, others today are just visiting, and my great desire is to feed all of you with wonderful food. Uh, I feel a bit like a father at the dinner table saying, come, sit down, make yourself comfortable. You are so welcome. We're so glad you came. We have a wonderful feast prepared for you. Please let us feed you. Let us feed you with coffee and cake after the service and feast your hearts with fellowship. Before that, much more importantly, let us uh, feed you from this holy table of God and feast your souls with the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. But even before that, as we open God's word together now, let us feed you with the truth that sets you free. Because you are so hungry. Your soul is so desperately hungry for goodness, for moral excellence and righteousness in this wicked and depraved generation. Your heart is so desperately hungry for beauty, for wondrous light and glory in this dismal and filthy world. And your mind is so desperately hungry for truth amid all the predatory lies. So come and eat. We have food for everyone. Please don't leave here today still hungry. My hope and prayer is that you would leave here full in every way, satisfied and rejoicing after the feast of all feasts. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, let's open them together now to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to start today with what is true, then with what is good, and finally what is beautiful. First, what is true? What is true is that Jesus is risen from the dead. Matthew 28 begins in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. A little bit later on in verse 9, Jesus himself meets the women and says, They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Jesus rose from the dead. And it is no doubt an amazing truth, but it is nonetheless a sure and certain fact. No fact of history has ever been fought or opposed so fiercely as this one. For 2,000 years now, it has suffered a relentless onslaught of skepticism, with the result that you might sit here today and not really be quite sure whether it really happened. You might be completely sure that it didn't, or just not really sure what you think, or you're pretty sure it is true, but there are still little cracks of doubt. All the best food that I have for you today requires that you believe this for absolutely certain. So we're going to start here and linger here. I want you to notice in this chapter that lies about the resurrection of Jesus began 
on day one. On the very day he came out of his grave, people started lying about it. Because in verse 11, while the women were going, behold, <clears throat> some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew writes, to this day, meaning around AD 60 when he was writing, 30-some years after it happened. But it's no less true to this day, is it? April the 9th, 2023, you can still find people out there on the streets or in books and magazines who tell you, oh, his disciples came and stole the body. In terms of propaganda, those chief priests and elders launched the most successful fake news campaign in history, didn't they? And certainly they got their money's worth, whatever it cost them to bribe those soldiers. But it wasn't true then, and it's not true now. And the money proves it. Follow the money. Because nobody pays you money to, to, to get you to tell the truth. None of you are going to bribe someone $50 after service and is like, tell my mom I was in church today. It's not going to happen. So I invite you all to call this what it is, using the delightful English word. I'm getting a bit of a reputation for using this word, and I'm just going to embrace that. Rubbish. It means trash, worthless garbage. Say that with me, and you can do the English accent. Say it with a healthy dose of English contempt. The priest spread the word that the disciples stole the body. To that, the saints of God say, rubbish. Such a thing wasn't possible physically with the massive sealed stone and a guard of multiple Roman soldiers. They weren't Ethan Hunt. And neither was it possible emotionally for them to go from running away and hiding to stealing a body and starting a church. They weren't a bunch of liars. Rubbish. This was the first great lie against the resurrection, but it was very far from being the last. We're going to skip over most of them, but I do want to mention a few highlights. The 7th century rolled around, and along came the Quran, with its declaration about Jesus in Surah 4, verse 157, which reads... And for their saying, indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But another, who turns out to be Judas, was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumption. And they did not kill him for certain. Which, of course, flatly contradicts not only all of the eyewitnesses who were there at the time, but many of the words of Jesus himself, who said, I will be crucified. I lay down my life. The Quran makes the move of establishing its version of the truth on the premise that God is a liar. To which the saints of God say, rubbish. Next came the Enlightenment scientists of the 18th century, like Pierre Simone Laplace, who told Napoleon that science no longer had need of the God hypothesis. In other words, that predictable rules and laws can now account for everything we see and experience in this world, and nothing outside of those laws needs to exist, therefore doesn't exist. Still a very common view to this day. But it is unspeakably arrogant, and not even close to true. 
The humble scientist today knows that his models are, at very best, approximations, that anomalies abound everywhere he looks in the real world, so that Hamlet was right to say there are more things in heaven and on earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. Even in the very purest forms of science, in math and physics, Einstein comes along to rework Newton, and then string theory comes along to rework Einstein. Physicists are no longer even sure that what we think of as the force of gravity even exists. The James Webb Telescope recently sent back findings that utterly destroy everything Stephen Hawking had to say about the history of the universe. What we still not, do not know about God's creation would fill all the libraries in this world probably a hundred times over. So when scientists say that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen because it is impossible, the saints of God say, rubbish! In the 19th century, in came the theologians of historical criticism who tried to pick the Bible to pieces and cast doubt on its authorship, its integrity, its claims of historicity. Surely, they said, the Bible speaks in metaphors. No one who wrote the New Testament believed in a literal resurrection. It's just a story that they told to illustrate the work that God is doing spiritually in people's lives. But we just heard Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the data, and he could hardly be clearer why are some people saying there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised, and you are not raised, and your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins, and we're a bunch of liars for misrepresenting God. Doesn't sound very metaphorical to me. <laughs> you're really going to die. You want to be metaphorically raised to life? You're really sick and wicked. You want to be metaphorically healed and saved? To those revisionist theologians, the saints of God say, rubbish! And we'll finish with the postmodern historians who say, you can't trust the ancient texts. They're always changing. Show me an original copy of the Bible. You can't. It's been copied and copied by hand for hundreds of years. Sloppy scribes getting things wrong over and over. It's just a game of telephone. And the text now will be unrecognizable from whatever it was starting out. It's not honest. It's not true. And the good historians call foul. Of course, we don't have original copies of the New Testament, but we do have fragments of the New Testament from as early as 130 AD, full manuscripts from 350 AD, and overall more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,000 in other languages for a total of about 24,000 early copies, which is more than any other ancient text by about 24,000. The New Testament started being translated right away and sent around the world. So the copies of copies was happening simultaneously in multiple languages at the same time. And when we bring those back together, we find almost total agreement. Nothing has substantially changed. So once more, to the postmodern historians who cast shade on the reliability of our scriptures, the saints of God say, rubbish. No event of human history has ever been attacked as fiercely or as relentlessly as the resurrection of Jesus on Easter morning. It has been shot at with lies and spin and half-truths and manipulated data from every conceivable angle, and yet it stands firm like a granite mountain, while the lies bounce off it like dried peas. I've given you today only the very briefest of tours, but you could delve into any one of those points in great depth by reading multiple books, and you would find that a strong and compelling case against the resurrection of Jesus simply does not exist. They all, they all boil down 
to a basic incredulity in defiance of the facts of the case. It's not good science, it's not good history, it's not good law, it's not good detective work, it's not good theology, it's just doubt. Several writers who have sat down to refute the resurrection of Jesus systematically have changed their minds halfway through the project in light of the evidence. Read Lee Strobel, The Case for Easter, or Frank Morrison, Who Moved the Stone, or for the analysis of a cold case detective, read Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. Given its perseverance against the relentless onslaught of its skeptics, I'm happy to declare that the resurrection of Jesus is the most well-attested fact in all of our science or history. Do you expect that any tenet of our science would have survived 2,000 years of this kind of abuse? Even gravity? Even Pythagoras? Even one plus one equals two? So rejoice in this, friends, and believe that this is true. If you have some doubts still, do not go on with your life happy about those doubts. You are ignoring the most important and well-attested event in our planet's history. And you're hoping that one of those cases against the resurrection ends up being true. Actually, you are staking your life on it. Because if you're wrong, you're going to die. And let me assure you with love that you are wrong. And I am staking my life that this is so, it being true then, why is it good? It's good because you are a human being with a soul, and what your soul hungers for more than anything in the world is righteousness. It hungers for the holiness of God. We feel the suffering of our own souls through what we call our conscience when it aches inside us with that unique kind of pain that tells us that we were wrong, that we have done wrong, that we have caused pain, that we have hurt people. And the pricking of our conscience, although it doesn't hurt us physically, might be of all pains the hardest one for us to live with long term. And our souls also ache to be living in a world of so much evil. Our souls are offended every day when we read the news and see innocent people murdered, the rich stealing from the poor, the strong hurting the weak, and getting away with no punishment. It wounds our souls that cannot help loving goodness, and it makes them cry out in outrage and sorrow and anger. So we hunger ravenously for someone good to come and make it right, and also to come and make us right, to forgive us, to heal us, to soothe that ache of our guilty consciences. And until that happens, the only solution the human race has found so far to this great problem, to this deep hunger, is denial and distraction. In other words, we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves, oh, it's not that bad. We're not that bad. The world is getting better. It will sort itself out someday. We just need the right leaders, the right politics, better education, better technology. It's all going to be okay. No, it's not. That's denial. Until the denial becomes so necessary to our own survival that we will do anything to defend it. And so we find ourselves in much the same place as those priests in Matthew chapter 28, the ones who paid off the soldiers to tell lies about what really happened to Jesus. We have to deny 
because denial is necessary. Think for a moment about the position those early priests were in. Jesus was a man they had crucified, a man they had hounded to death in a fit of religious zeal. And they believed, I think, that they were doing the will of God. But the resurrection proved them quite wrong. And the conclusion was that those priests had brutally murdered the anointed Messiah of God. Oops. Who could live with that kind of red ink on their ledger? It simply had to be denied, didn't it? The truth was absolutely unthinkable. And so we too often find that we have a personal stake in denying the truth because of what it would force us to conclude about our lives so far that they have been founded on lies and are just a catalog of mistakes and because of what it says about us now that we are truly guilty of crimes beyond our ability to comprehend. We are not good and we deserve death and worse. But here then is the goodness of the risen Jesus. It comes down, down into that denial and it offers it a hand and it says, comfort, little one. I am here now for your good. I am myself the goodness that you have been so hungry for. Behold my life that was completely unstained by even a trace of sin. Take it. It is yours. I give it up for you. I break it open to pay for you, and I make out of it a robe to cover you, so that you will have as a treasure for your own possession my forgiveness to wash your conscience clean, my own righteousness to satisfy your hungry soul, and my Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside with power to do good. That promise is the gift of his resurrection, and it's for everyone. And he would have said it to those priests too who lied about him. I believe he did say it to some of them who repented and came back to him. The mercy of God is wider than the oceans and nobody has ever sinned their way outside of it. In the fullness of time, our Lord Jesus is coming back and he is going to set the whole world right. He's going to completely satisfy our souls as they hunger for goodness. Hallelujah. And finally, here is the beauty that our hearts long for. Don't you find that you just can't live in a world of ugliness? At some point, a messy, dirty, chaotic house just becomes unlivable, and you have to jump up and tidy it and clean it and fix it up and bring it into order. A pig might live happily in a sty, but you can't because you have a heart, and your heart craves beauty. It seeks out beauty in nature, in music, in art galleries, and in people. And it finds some there, but it is usually left hungry because what it's really looking for is glory, splendor, magnificence, beauty that is literally breathtaking. It aches for and misses the beauty of the God who made it. It aches for and misses the beauty of his good creation before it was spoiled. And the resurrection of Jesus restores that beauty. It brings back glory into our lives in several ways. Think about the life of Jesus itself. It was a good life, a kind life, and a noble life, 
full of wise teachings and gracious miracles, but utterly spoiled and ruined by his ugly death by crucifixion. If that had been the last word, what a ruined tragedy his life would have been. But as much as the crucifixion spoils it, the resurrection repairs it and glorifies his life even more. Now it becomes victorious, deliberate, vindicated, and triumphant. Now it becomes gut-wrenchingly beautiful. We call it the greatest story ever told. Our God in heaven is so beautiful that none of us could look at him and live. The sight of him would literally kill us. We might gaze up at the sun in all its brightness for 10 seconds or so, and it would burn out our eyes and make us blind. It wouldn't kill us. The sight of God in heaven would burn out our hearts. Even the radiance of his angel in Matthew 28 petrified those Roman soldiers and made them like dead men. So, the most beautiful thing we can look at now is the life of Jesus, the Son of God, as he reveals to us the exact image of God in a way that we can look at and still live. And that is rich food for our hungry hearts. But it comes with a promise of more besides, because Jesus rose from the dead, was given a new resurrection body, bright and glorious, and his followers understood that they too would be raised up in the same way as he promised them, Where he has gone, we will follow. We will become in ourselves beautiful and glorious. But also, we will be capable of seeing with our own resurrected eyes the full glorious beauty of God. So here, in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, is the feast of all feasts. It is an abundance of everything we most deeply long for. It is truth to fill our hungry minds goodness to fill our hungry souls, and beauty to fill our hungry hearts. So will you take it today? Receive it, believe it, feast upon it. I command you in Jesus' name, come alive.